Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip focuses on the fear of losing love principle. Plus, an interview with employment attorney Jamila Brinson. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip back with another episode of the Ask Philip podcast, and um, I have a special guest today, Jamila Brinson, out of H Town. That's my hometown. Uh, she is an employment law partner, and it's Jackson Walker, right? Yeah, Jackson Walker. Yes. I, I didn't want to say. I knew it was one of the big ones. I didn't want to say the wrong one, and you're like, "Oh no, that's not us. That's the no, that's, the, that's, that's not the us. Low, there are a lot the of lower brands. There's one Jackson Walker." <laughs> Um, and you're an employment law partner. Employment law. That sounds super like like you don't go to law school and say, yeah, I'm going to do employment law. So how'd you get into employment law? Well, you know, I actually took a class in law school um, from a professor, Ronald Turner, and it was on race in the law. And it dealt a lot with all of the laws that deal with how to protect people based on their if they fall into certain categories. So um, based how to protect people against discrimination and harassment based on gender, age, sex, excuse me, sex and gender. Well, sex now also encompasses um, sexual orientation based on recent changes at the U.S. Supreme Court. But all of those groups that I had never, I mean, I understood and had learned about the civil rights movement, but not the laws that, you know, made some of those decisions possible. So Mm. I just thought it was fascinating. And when I started practicing at Jackson Walker, right out of law school, um, my partner mentor, she practiced employment law and it's on the management side, meaning that we help employers uh, manage their relationships with their employees. Makes sense. And it's needed. I want to have this episode because with COVID and it feels like the whole employment landscape is not only changed, but is in constant change. Like if you're an employer, you have to deal with remote working. You have to deal with, I mean, and, and with remote working, you have to deal with just like, how do we make sure we do it right? How do we make sure we stay within the rules? It's all kinds That's of nice. questions. And we don't have a super long podcast to go into everything, but I, I have a couple of questions I thought you might can help uh, answer about. So, so if you have employees working at home, are you able to do anything to make sure they're actually, you know, working? And 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 do you have any like crazy stories of clients like wanting to put cameras in people's homes to see if they're working? Or <laughs> <laughs> I'm sh- well. I will say this: uh, most of my employers are very reasonable, and you know, they also are dealing with um, having to work from home personally, as well as managing their children and. Um, you know, virtual school and that sort of thing. So I do think COVID has really, you know, brought home um, to really everyone. And even if you are an employer, you own a company, you manage a company, how important it is to be able to manage both sides of your life, both parts of your life. But I mean, ultimately the work still needs to get done because that's how everybody gets paid. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, COVID has definitely 
definitely changed the landscape. You have some companies that have always had a work from home policy, but it may not have been a 100% work from home. And in early COVID, it was companies, some companies implemented it just for safety so that there would be less people in the office. Um, and they could more manage um, the safety concerns of COVID. But you, now you have the concerns of, well, are we are people really working at their maximum potential um, if they're working all from home 100% of the time? Now I'm getting questions like, what can I do? What can I do? And so the, the, the first thing I always recommend to my clients is you need to have a policy. You need to have a written policy and procedure for how an employee can work from home. Um, and so that's called a telework policy. And the policy would, ex- you know, lay out explicitly what are the requirements for working from home, that it is not a right, that it is a privilege to be able to work from home. Um, and it is at the discretion of the employer to allow the employee to work from home. And if you do work from home, you know, you need to meet these requirements. You need, if it's an employee that um, is an hourly employee, then you need to log in in this way at the beginning and log out for each break. Or um, if it's an employee that is just a salaried employee and it's not, there's no need to keep track of hours, then, you know, you need to make sure you check your emails every day and um, that you are at your desk and available to work from X time until X time. And then a lot of it is just on the honor system. Once you have the policy in place, it's a trust of the employee Combined with what type of work product are you seeing um, being returned by that employee? And as soon as you see the work product starting to slide, then, you know, following your same policies and procedures that you hopefully have in place about evaluating that work and giving appropriate feedback. And if it's the work quality decrease is connected to them working from home, um, making sure that appropriate warnings are being given to employees and ultimately there's no change than having them come back into the office. So you have, you have some options, but nothing exciting like being able to have a, a camera in their home or, um, you know, you do have some empl- employers where now employees access the systems um, from home and you can see, you know, how much access the person has um, utilized your system, which was something that was would have been in place when they were in the office too. So that would still exist. Um, and of course, you know, if there's any kind of monitoring of emails and that kind of thing, you have to make sure that the appropriate policies are in place um, to let employees know that their right to privacy um, is limited and they are consenting to that. So okay, got it's interesting. It. Yeah, I, I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna make managers actually like work now. You gotta actually have expectations, track it, right? Because the high performers are gonna high perform r- regardless right. if they have the right, especially if they have the right incentives. Um, That's right. You know, the middle the middle folks are gonna operate based only on the incentives, and then the you know the underperformers are gonna underperform no matter what. So you just gotta figure out how to find them and get them out of there. No, that's right. And COVID, with all of the changes with COVID, that just adds a certain additional layer, right? Because if the person has um, health conditions that they attribute their uh, their concerns, or if their um, their children are virtual virtual learning, and they attribute their decreased capacity to work to that, you know what what is in place that you need to make sure that you understand that is. And that you're accounting for that. I mean, there are all these additional layers of things that COVID has 
piled on top of. That's a good point. That's, that's a great point. Now that things are opening back up, I don't want to say temporarily because, you know, I don't know. We're, you know. I don't know about this virus. Like it was in the summertime. It was supposed to, when it's supposed to die, it didn't. Now we're going into the winter, which we haven't had in the winter. And I don't know, the flu is worse here. Maybe this will be worse. Maybe it'll be better. I don't really know. But we're opening right. up right now. Uh, how do you legally get employees to come back to work with all the COVID risks and fears? Like, you know, what if you say employee says, no, I don't like I have my mom lives with me and she's 70. I'm not coming back. No, I mean, that's a, that's been a very real concern. Employee, I I will say I've been very um, impressed by employers and how understanding they've been um, in trying to work with their employees. Again, I think because on just on a human level, some managers, supervisors, you know, owners of companies have been having some of the same issues, concerns and considerations. Um, but really just trying to figure out how to appropriately um, understand the concerns of their employees and manage that with the other side of needing to get the work done. And so I think um, employers have been given a lot more leverage and leeway in my experience, they've been complying with the new Families First Act that came out that requires employers to provide a certain amount of paid leave to employees um, for COVID-related reasons. And one of those being if you have a child who is in school um, or cannot be in school, rather, and needs to be at home and there's no other person to take care of the child or um if you have a health condition or, you know, your exposure may expose someone else who may be at higher risk, those types of considerations. But even on top of what is required under the Families First Act, employers have implemented their own policies to, to be more flexible with employees, you know, but at the point where it's time to come back to the office, or if you're an employer where the work gets done in the office, you're a manufacturing company and you need people to get the work done inside of your facilities, then um, employers have been very good about helping to soothe the concerns of their employees about safety. I think that's been the biggest thing. Legally, if you're employed, for you to remain employed, um, unless there is a, a legal reason otherwise, you need to be where your employer says you need to be for the work to get done, right? Mm. But you'd want a workforce that's going to be there and focused on working and not concerned about whether or not you know, they're going to be exposed to COVID. So I've seen employers develop basically safety policies that lay out what the employer is doing, what they've put in place to protect their employees from or lowering the risk of being exposed to COVID. Um, and then the expectations that they have for their employees to adhere to these rules so that it decreases everyone's risk of being exposed to COVID. So again, with the um, the, the telework policy, it would be a policy that's, you know, thought about and, and well-written and put in place that is um, given to all employees with written notice and um, explained to all employees where you ask the employee to acknowledge receipt of it and their agreement to adhere to the policy. That's been, you know, one of the biggest things. And that signals to employees, it's now time to come back in the office, but this is what we've been doing to make sure that, you know, you will be as safe um, as as you can be in this environment. 
And that's been working very well. And then in informing employees that if you have a particular circumstance unique to you that makes it difficult or impossible for you to come back in the office, you know, please contact human resources or please contact this particular person to discuss um, whether any type of reasonable accommodation can be put in place to deal with your specific circumstances. And then going through what we call the interactive process to, you know, a back and forth between the employee and employer to figure out what can be done. But ultimately, if, you know, if, if what the employee needs, it's something that the employer cannot provide without undue burden, um, then the employer, because we are an at-will state in Texas, as long as they're not terminating the person for um, because of some discriminatory reason, the employer, you know, can can terminate the employment relationship. Mm. Yeah, no, that, yeah, and, and and that's probably like the, the fuzzy area that hadn't been tested, right? The discriminatory reason, if you know, because I'm always like, is you know, is COVID a discriminatory reason? Um, right. That's like that fuzzy gray area yeah. that. No, that's right. And, and people are still trying to figure out, you know, um, it's, is COVID just another, well, if you have COVID, you know, do you fall under just it being a health condition? And then do you fall under kind of one of the, um, one of the, the, it being a disability? So then do we deal with it under the law that deals with, um, disabilities, the ADA, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act? Or is it an issue of you needing to take leave? So then does that fall under the Family Medical Leave Act um, and, you know, the obligations and privileges that that law provides? Or, you know, is it just um, something where it falls under um, paid leave? Because if, as you know, the Family Medical Leave Act, that's unpaid leave. Um, or does it fall under, you know, paid leave that you are entitled to under the Families First Act? Or is it just, it does not fall under any of that. Um, and it's the employer to try and maintain goodwill with their employees and good morale. Should we establish flexible policies? So it's, it's a lot to really, as an employer, have to think through and consider and, and put policies and procedures in place to ensure that the people that are implementing um, what's been decided, it's being done in a way that is not perceived as being, or that is, and is not discriminatory um, in the ways that the law requires. So it's, it's, it's tough right now being an employer. Mm-hmm. L- last two questions. So uh, the, the hiring process for the, for the few folks that, that, that are hiring, how is that process, you know, going specifically like, like one, one of the questions I wondered is, you know, when you're hiring, you you probably want to ask something like, do you have kids? Does your mom live with you? Is she over 70? Like you kind of want to, you know, you would want to ask these personal questions to see the risk of, of, uh, of things happening. But I imagine you can't, <laughs> you can't ask those kind of questions. You cannot, so. <laughs> you know, even before COVID, you can ask whether or not you have kids, right, whether right. you're married. There the, <laughs> are definitely laws in place that, um, prevent those types of questions um, or, you know, strongly discourage those types of questions. Right, right, right. So so I guess the hiring process has pretty much stayed the same, but the way people are doing it is probably changing more virtual. And and there are, there have been some changes. There have been some changes that our um, employers have needed to happen and, to, and the um, agencies that have passed some of these rules, you know, like the, the, um, equal Employment um, Opportunity Commission 
which deals with a lot of the, um, if an employee feels that they've been discriminated against, that is the first step where they would go to file a charge of discrimination. Um, and in Texas, you also have the Texas Workforce Commission where if um, an employee's being discriminated against, they, they could file a charge there as well and be covered under the Texas statute that protects um, individuals from employees from being discriminated against. But, you know, those agencies... And some of the case law, the very few case law that exists so far has shown that it is okay for an employer to ask certain COVID-related questions, such as, have you traveled outside of the country, you know, 14 days prior? Have you, um, um, are, are you aware that whether you've been exposed to COVID in the last X number of days? You can even ask an employee, um, excuse me, a, a candidate who you have, and this is all with the, as, with the assumption that you have made an initial offer to the employee, to the candidate, excuse me. And so now this is post initial offer in that process of trying to figure out when the person can actually come and work. You need to know as employer, whether that person has been exposed to COVID in some recent period of time. And um, employers even have the right to require the candidate who they've made an initial offer to, to get tested for COVID because if, the person has had exposure or is positive, you can imagine you have that person come into your workplace, the impact it will have on the mm-hmm. workplace um, if it other people are exposed or get infected. So there are definitely questions, COVID-related questions that are allowed and that are completely legal, but um, you definitely want to make sure you consult with your human resources group or, um, you know, with an, with an employment attorney first before you create the new script for mm-hmm. your um, interviews to make sure that you you don't, you know, get caught um, and do something um, that someone will then allege that it was illegal. So last question, what, what, what principles do you live by that you attribute to your success? And let me give you, you know, I know you know this, but I mean, you know, to be a, there's not a lot of women attorneys, there's not a lot of black attorneys and you're a black woman attorney at a prestigious firm and a partner. So you probably have like what, 10, you know, 10 other people in Texas that are similar, similar demographic. So obviously. I hope more than that, but yes, it's where we're definitely a small. small yeah. yeah. I'm being, I'm partially being funny. Oh, I know. Uh, but so, so what principles have you attributed to, to your success in getting to where you are in life? It's funny because I, since I've, been working so much from home um, and just with, with the climate and everything that's going on, it's the elections and just, you know, I think so much, I think about that a lot um, just as I'm trying to s- still make sure that I am, you know, mentoring the mentees that I have and, you know, trying to be a good role model to my kids and family members. You know, I think about the things that have helped me. Um, and one of the biggest things has just being resilient, trying to be, to be like a duck, you know, let it all roll off because there's just so much going on in the world. I mean, there is, even if we weren't, if we weren't where we are now, there are just always things that are going on that can uh, discourage you or impact you. Um, make you think that what you want to achieve is not possible. And I've always been a, a glass half full person. Um, 
And that comes from just my upbringing and my spiritual beliefs. But, you know, just understanding and knowing that everything will work out for my good ultimately. So even if the path that I wanted to take is not the path that, you know, I ultimately I end up where I am is where I'm supposed to be. And that has helped with so much um, with regard to being positive and being optimistic about opportunities or miss opportunities and knowing that even in a miss opportunity, another opportunity will be on the horizon and being open to it and receptive and um, understanding that you plan, uh, but your plans can change and uh, you have to roll with it. That has been, I think, hands down, one of the things that has helped me uh, the most in this career um, and in this path and the support. I mean, my gosh, you know, my husband is amazing and uh, my family support system because I work a lot. I mean, lawyers in firms and you work, even if you're, I mean, lawyers period, you work a lot of hours. And even when you're not actually doing client work, you are thinking about the law. You're trying to learn about the law you are, you know, networking, you are doing community service, you are writing about the law. I mean, it is can be all consuming. And for you to do your job well, you have to do at least some of those components, right? Mm-hmm. Because the law is constantly changing. And for me to be able to advise you, I need to know what it is and what the be thinking already about the implications it would have for you as my client. Um, and so you need to have a good support system. And in in a firm that's mentorship and that's also sponsorship. I've had in recent years, some amazing sponsors, people who have done really well in their career and have you know reached back and lent a hand to help pull me up. Um, and I, you know, try to do the same in every way that I can. So I can, all of these have been very helpful. No, that's awesome. I love it. I love it. I loved it. I loved it all. I was like, yeah, that's, 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 you have to have all of that. So are you a football fan? I am not. Okay. Okay. I won't, I won't, I won't ask my other question then. Well, what about basketball? Are you watching basketball? No, okay. I am not. I don't watch sports unless it just happens to be on and I'm walking past the living room. <laughs> uh, cool, cool, cool. If anybody wants to reach out to you for any questions or find out about uh, your services, your firm services, how can they best reach you? You can reach me through the Jackson Walker um, website, and it's www.jw.com. You can also reach me. I can give you my office line, and you can reach me anytime, um, 713-752-4356. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, so I'm you know, happy always to be a, um, a resource um, because it's it's tough trying to figure it all out. And if you're trying to run a business and then also trying to figure out, you know, all of your employment laws, it's it can be a lot. So I'm happy to be a resource where I can. I appreciate your time. Thanks for, you know, taking time to do this. Um, it was good information. I know a lot of people who listen that own businesses or are managers will appreciate it. Well, cool. Well, have a, have a, have a good one. Thank, Thank you. You too. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. So for the month of really end of September into October, I've been working with my team on building a five-day email series called Building Wealth After Age 37, What Smart Advisors Won't Say. And it's a five-day email course. The reason why I built it was 
There are some people out here building investing courses. They cost thousands of dollars. And I've had a couple of friends and clients take the course and come out more confused than how they went into it. And they'd spent a thousand, two thousand bucks on it. And I know the people who are writing some of the courses and not a knock on them, but they don't have the experience and knowledge that a wealth manager has. And they definitely, at least some people, are taking the course thinking with an expectation of what they're going to get and they're not fully getting it. And so I was like, hey, listen, I'm going to build a course specifically for the people that want to know how to invest. They don't want to be a day trader, right? They don't want to look at charts all day or read the Wall Street Journal all day or do all this research. They just want to know, okay, how should I be investing to one day become financially free, reach my retirement goal, right? I want to enjoy life. I'm good at what I do at work. I don't want to become a money manager. I want to know how to invest. I don't want to just rely on some financial advisor or wealth manager to tell me. They don't mind working with them, but they want to know, all right, what is the process? What should I be doing? How should I get educated? So when they, so if they work with a wealth manager or an advisor, they understand what's going on. Or if they don't want to work with one, they have a good plan in place or a good thought process in place or decision-making process in place to help them build a plan to help to potentially reach their goal. And so uh, that's the course, Building Wealth After 37, What Smart Advisors Won't Say. I literally just took what I learned over the 14 years, put it into a five-day email series, short and concise. But after the five-day series, you will have what you need to uh, build your plan or go talk with a wealth manager and feel confident in the conversation. So check it out. If you go to StonehillWealthManagement.com, it's on the front page, StonehillWealthManagement.com. It's on the front page. Put in your name, email address, and it'll go to you. I won't be spamming you. You'll get the emails and and then you'll also get the weekly podcast episodes uh, sent to you. So that's it. Check it out. Let me know your thoughts. We are back with another principle, but before we go into principles, for those of you who are wondering, yes, I won my Thai boxing match, my Muay Thai match. I'm the champ. I didn't know I was going to have two fights in, in one night, but I ended up having two fights, so I am 2-0. and oh. I'm the 160 Fury Kickboxing Muay Thai Tournament champ, so the champ is here. <laughs> Let's get into the principles. Fear of losing love. And you're probably wondering, how does a fear of losing love have anything to do with money? Well, let me tell you. Over the years I've been advising folks, there's different things that that have attributed to people not having as much money as they as they probably should. Like one of the one of the main ones, right? And this is typically for I know it's big in African American culture, but in cultures that are more like Closer, closer family ties. A lot of them end up giving a lot of their extra discretionary money to family and friends, right? We hear about it with the athletes. Most athletes, I mean, sure, they buy nice stuff, but a lot of them end up broke because of giving so much money to family and friends and the folks who are asking them for money all the time. But it's not just athletes. Like I have clients who are doctors, business owners, partners of accounting firms or law firms, and to their family, like they're the athlete and they get hit up for a lot of money. And it's hard to say no when you come from a close, tight knit family and culture. And, and if they, you know, if you really dig deep into it, it's the fear of losing love, right? People don't want the people in their lives to quote unquote love them less or think less of them. So they feel like they are obligated or have to 
uh, give them what they have if they have it. Another example is people who go into business together, families or friends, and they don't have the hard conversation up front. They they go into business with no talk about money, how it's going to be split at death, disability, or retirement. It's just, hey, we're going to do this, and you know we'll figure it out later. And and again, the deep thing behind the thing is they have a fear of losing love or fear of losing that relationship by saying, hey, let's let's talk about money now because they don't want to seem like they're all about money, right? Another way it plays out is. Uh, parents who buy their kids whatever they want. They want their kids to adore them and love them and not go without. And they feel like if they don't do that at a, at a small level or at, at a big level, they're going to lose that kid's love and affection. This other one is that I've seen is it's really tough. It's probably the most difficult of all of them, but it's not standing your ground with a financially irresponsible spouse who is putting the family in a compromising financial position. Right. So these are all symptoms of the fear of of losing love. Right. And so here's what I've seen successful people do in similar situations. Right? I'm going to use the same examples, but how successful people have, have addressed it and managed to um, overcome the fear. So they approached the, They approached the situation with good intentions, uh, but very clear expectations and boundaries that are built around principles that are important to them. Right. So, for example, having a giving account, even if you make a million dollars a year and you have four hundred thousand dollars a year extra money after everything that doesn't belong to everybody but you. But you could say, hey, we we've been blessed with a lot. Why don't we put a fixed percentage? Right. So that if it's just you determine if you have a spouse determine. But you say, hey, uh, 10, 15, 20 percent, 5 percent, whatever the number is. But have it written out. This is how much we're going to put in an account for helping out the folks that we love uh, and care about. And then once that account is done, we're done. Now adding to it, we're not pulling from investments. We're not adding from our checking account. Like it's the fixed amount. And, and, and we can feel good because we have it. Because what you also want to have in your financial plan is you got your expenses, but you also have your long-term goals for retirement and saving, education for your kids, paying off things. You got other organizations and causes that you may want to give money to. And then you got just stuff that you want to do because you work hard and spend money on. And so you have a plan and you allocate all that, but you can allocate money to the giving account because, and here's the bigger, here's the bigger deal. The reason why you can't give them all is if, if a lot of times, if you, if you're helping them out, they're going to probably always, you're probably, you're probably going to always have somebody depending on you and you need to make sure that 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, you're still able to support everybody and support yourself. And the tree that produces the fruit didn't get uprooted, right? Because if you don't keep planting seeds to grow more trees, to provide more fruit, that the main tree is going to get uprooted and dead because all the fruit's gone. So think about it that way and have that set established given account. And once it's gone, it's gone. And if people want to be mad about it, that's on them. And I give, I'll give you like my full rule on that towards the end, right? So next situation where you're talking about going into business with a family or a friend or a partner, right? You just, just have the conversation, say up front, Hey, I value our relationship too much to let money ever get between us. So let's spill out our expectations now before we have lots of money coming in and things get confusing and weird, right? I don't think it will be, but I've seen it happen. So let's just have it up front, right? And 
we're we're eventually going to have the conversation anyway. If somebody dies early, retires, becomes disabled, divorced, somebody wants to sell out of the business, a portion or all, or we have a full sale of the business. So the conversation is going to happen. Let's just have it now when we don't have any money and just make it real clear. So when it happens, there's no issues involved, right? It's just expectations are, are, are clearly there, right? And if you say that, that's nice. That's saying you value the relationship. It's not coming off rude. You're being real reasonable. And a reasonable person, in, in my opinion, would understand that. But you got to have the guts to have the conversation and and then put the plan in place. Kids, right? Talk about the kids, giving them what they want. I, I don't know if I would look at it as the denying my kids, right? Especially because my wife and I talk about this all the time. Like both of our kids have grown up in a home for their whole life that neither one of us, you know, had. They live in a great neighborhood with a great school district and, and we're proud of that. Like we don't, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, if you're a parent, you want your kids to start off at a better base than, than what you do. But we we also intentionally say, hey, we we have to ground them in certain areas, and one of the areas is we don't like we just, we don't buy them a lot at all. Like um, we haven't spent, and this is us personally. I don't like anybody uh, who does this within their means, but we haven't done big things for uh, a lot of big things for birthday parties. We get them a decent amount of stuff, but the others that they get, they have to work for it. They got to get good grades. My four year old finally learned how to uh, poo poo on the potty. Uh, after a long, long, long struggle, but we told them, "Hey, you have to poop on the potty this amount of ten times in order to get this toy that you want, right?" And he finally did it, right? And he and he earned it even at four. And so I don't look at denying my kids as a negative. I look at it as a gift. Probably think about about money. Like my four year old, after he did it, he was like, "Okay, now I want to get." This toy, this toy. And I said, okay, listen, we have money, but we got to put some money in savings, some in investing. We got to use some to pay off our student loans. We can't spend all the money on toys, Kellen, or we're not going to, you know, our money's not going to make money. And, and granted, I know he has no clue what I'm saying, but I've been saying it to my nine year old since he was asking for things at four. And now my nine year old understands it. So we have the conversation and we let him know, Hey, money is not unlimited and you're always going to have to prioritize your money no matter how much you make. And I want to put that in them early because if that's in them, then as they get older, they're going to have a huge financial advantage over everybody else, which is more important to me. It's more important for me to, to, to teach them how to fish than to give them fish. Next one. So, the, and this is the toughest one, right? The, 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 the irresponsible spouse situation, right? But this conversation is similar to the business partner conversation. You just want to, even if, you know, you're already in a relationship and money's already co-mingled. You just try to have a conversation about making the expectations clear about what you want and what the other partner wants about money. And and I would keep it more goal-focused. Like, what are your goals? What's important to you financially? Where do you want to be financially one year, two year, three year, four year, ten years from now? And then talk about, and you, you're probably going to need a professional, but talk about building a plan that's going to help you get where you want to go financially. And by the way, if you're the one having a conversation, you're the one that's probably going to have to give the most for the plan, meaning you might want a certain amount of money in this time frame. And maybe, you're, you know, if your spouse agrees, fine, but you may have to say, all right, I'm, I'm comfortable with doing this later as long as we're on board with the plan and be okay with that because the most, most important is that you both get on a plan 
versus actually achieving the goal, right? Because you'll get there if you have a plan. And once the other partner sees the process of the plan and sees the uh, improvement, maybe you'll get there in your time when you both are fully on that time frame. But be willing to, to, to give a lot in exchange for getting on a mutually agreed upon plan um, when you're having this conversation. Now, there's a possibility that your partner says, I'm, I don't want to do this. I just want to be irresponsible with money. Well, that's when you got to make a real tough decision about what you what you want in life. You got to say, am I comfortable always struggling with money with this person for the rest of my life? And if you're not, you got to make some tough decisions, which I'm not giving advice on that. But here's a rule I live by, right? In in all of these situations, that just helps me overcome the fear of losing love. It's like as long as my intentions are good, and only you can judge your intentions, but as long as my intentions are good, I don't allow what someone might think or do affect my decision-making process, right? It's not my wife, not my kids, not my parents, not friends, you know, nobody, right? If they choose to get upset and choose to not love me and I'm doing something from a good intention, you know, not a bad intention, then that's on them. That's their problem. They got a, they got a problem that they need to deal with, but that's not my problem. And I'm not, I'm not taking on their problems. I'm not in the business of doing that because my problems are hard enough. And so it's painful and I can't, I can't control what they do or, or, or how they feel. I can do my best to communicate, you know, what I'm trying to do, but it's not going to affect my decision making process. And, and it becomes freeing because what you end up finding is the people that are good for you, Stay in your life because they understand your attention is good and you have a good communication. But the people that have not learned to deal with emotions in a healthy way, it weeds them out real quick, right? Because they have, they feel some kind of way about it and they can't get over it and they move on with life and, and it gives me more space to be me, right? The more you do it, the more you attract more people in your life who are better for you anyway. That's been, that's been my experience, right? Like, you know, downside is, I don't actually I don't see a downside. Some people might say downside is sometimes you're too honest, right? And and you definitely want to learn how to soften your communication, but like you know, even the people that have had a problem with my communication or what I've done, like I I think I have their respect. They may not like me, but they're like, Hey, this dude is honest. He's straight up, you know? And whether they want to respect me or not, like they respect me, I think. Or maybe they don't, but I don't really care. <laughs> That's the message for the day. I hope this has been helpful. So for the wrap up, now that I'm the champ, by the way, side note, I'm still waiting on my belt though. I got, I got to take a picture with a belt, uh, but they ran out of belts. It was crazy. Just a crazy day. Like we, we were supposed to weigh in at, at, at eight. The doors didn't open until like 840. It was done in a church, like literally like in the middle of the church with the pews taken out and we had a ring where the pews were. I didn't fight until five and nine. But, you know, I applaud the organization. Like, it was a good experience, but it was just, it was, it was very interesting. So I don't have my belt. I'll have my belt in like 30 days. I plan to walk into the podcast today with my belt on and get my picture with the belt, but that didn't play out. So what's next? What's next is just to get to, get to 160. You know, maybe I'll do another fight. Maybe not. I told myself being 36 and a wealth manager, I don't need to be like a professional fighter. So I said, Philip, you can do. Four fights. No more than four, right? I don't plan to do any more. I just love the workout. But the, I, I had to put a max so I wouldn't get carried away. Maybe my next goal should be like a trainer, right? I Like I really, really, really would like to be Roger Mayweather. I don't want to be Floyd. I want to be Roger. Roger Mayweather. Uh, what's another good trainer, Steve? You know another good, another good trainer for a good boxer? 
I just know Roger. That, that was my generation's time. Roger, Roger Mayweather, you know, was the was the man. I can maybe I could be like a mix between Roger Mayweather and Al Heyman. You know who Al Heyman is? Al Heyman is like uh, money guy behind Floyd, the one that helps get the deals and the money. I'll be a mix between Roger and and, and Al Heyman for for Muay Thai. We'll get it big, and, and I guess I'll take on some MMA clients too because they like to do Muay Thai as well. So that's it. You heard it here first. I'm launching my training career for Muay Thai. I might retire as a champ. That'll be good. That's great marketing. Yes. Y'all enjoy y'all's weekend. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.